From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Adam Smith, says the Pentagon's chief management officer position should stay in place for now to prove it's fulfilling the vision Congress had for it when it created the office. The Senate Armed Services Committee's version of the 2021 National Defense Authorization Act includes language that would eliminate the CMO office and job. FCW reports Smith says he's, quote, open to being more educated about closing the office. Space Operations Command, Space Training and Readiness Command, and Space Systems Command will be the three main field commands in the new Space Force. Headquarters Vice Commander Lieutenant General David Thompson says the force took what he calls a clean sheet approach to the structure. Defense News reports three-star generals will lead Operations Command and Systems Command. A two-star will eventually lead Training and Readiness Command. Three striking union members at Bath Ironworks in Maine have tested positive for coronavirus. The company's parent, General Dynamics, tells employees if they worked on the hull of what will become the USS Carl Levin or were on the picket line Monday through Wednesday of last week, they should get tested. Breaking Defense reports the strike is in its second week. The Senate's version of the National Defense Authorization Act gives the go-ahead for $250 million for research and development in the Air Force. The authorization would help the force enhance launch requirements and capabilities. Deborah Lee James was the 23rd Secretary of the Air Force. She's the author of Aim High, Chart Your Course, and Find Success. Madam Secretary, it's great to see you again. What do you see in the NDAA that is most important to you for the future progress of the Air Force, ma'am? Well, what I'm watching in particular, Francis, is to see how the two versions from the House Armed Services Committee and the Senate Armed Services Committee ultimately reject various Air Force proposals. Um, there's many areas of agreement, but there are certain areas of disagreement, and the disagreements are what I'm watching most closely. And I, I boil it down to five headline news stories. Um, the first is, once again, both houses of Congress are rejecting the Air Force's proposal to retire legacy aircraft. So I put that as number one. I felt like I've been to that movie before and the ending to the sequel is exactly the same as the original movie. The second one I would give you is skepticism about the Air Force's advanced battle management system program. There's cuts, there's all kinds of reporting requirements. Congress can't see it, feel it, so they're just not sure about it yet. They're not willing to fully sign on. The third is no armed overwatch, at least not for now, for SOCOM. And lastly, you just put your finger on it. I think it's very interesting. There'll be a new technology uh, development program for space that will keep more companies uh, government funded even after the Air Force picks two space launch providers to go forward with. The first two that you listed are the ones that interest me the most, Madam Secretary. The retirement of legacy systems, you're right. And this is a movie you've been to many times. And preceding Air Force secretaries have been, this is something that Congress and the department have gone back and forth on year after year after year. Isn't that the case? It, it really is. And it boils down to these are all fine aircraft. But as aircraft age, they become more and more expensive to maintain. And now that the Air Force, as well as the other services, are once again beginning to enter into a period of constrained resources, they've had a period 
for the last three to four years of very, very large budgets where everything could be done. But now they've got to make choices once again. And so they tend to want to try to retire legacy in favor of freeing up money to work for the next generation of aircraft. And Congress just repeatedly says, no, not in my backyard, not in my district, not in my state. And at the risk of splitting hairs, ma'am, it strikes me that when you talk about Air Force aging, there's a conceptual issue there, too. It's not just how old an individual plane is, it's how old a program is, I imagine, as well. Is that fair to say? And a capability. Mm -hmm. The types of capabilities that have been so essential for us in the fight against ISIS and other terror groups in the Middle East and Africa are not the same capabilities that we will need in the future, God forbid, if we ever go into a near-peer fight with a country like China or Russia. We need different types of capabilities that can break through air defenses, that can be stealthier, that can survive in those sorts of environments. And the aircraft of today uh, simply are judged to not be survivable. Second item that you mentioned is ABS, and that uh, the, the intangibility of it is the issue there, it seems to me. You mentioned it uh, when you talked about that item. What, what, should, what would you like to see the force do to, to be able to, sells the wrong word, explain to Congress the value that the warfighter gets out of ABS? Well, I mean, of course, your, your viewers know this, Francis, but this is the program which the Air Force hopes and envisions will be the future of interconnectedness across mm -hmm. the force so that all domains can be able to talk and, and communicate with one another and push decisions down to be able to speed the uh, ability of future warfare. So it's really important. But the problem is it's multiple experiments at this point. There is no um, there's there, there is no there there for the Congress to put their hands around. There's no manufacturing plant in a particular state. There's no huge number of jobs associated with it. So I think the Air Force just has to stay the course. They have to do their best to provide the reports and keep answering the questions that Congress asks. And over time, as this, these programs start to really take root and there are more jobs associated with it, this is something that Congress will certainly latch onto and become more and more interested. These demonstration programs also need to show some results. And as that happens over the next couple of years, I think Congress will be much more inclined to support. And it strikes, we have about a minute left, Madam Secretary, but it strikes me that with the Army and the Navy also at least indicating interest, if not outright participation with the Air Force yet in that system, at some point it, there's going to be a critical mass, I would think, inside the, the Defense Department broadly to say to Congress, we really need this and we really need your help to get it. Is that a, an accurate representation of what could happen here? I think, I think that's fair, and I think the Air Force, if I were still the Secretary of the Air Force, and I'm sure they're, they're doing this, I would be uh, targeting champions in the Congress. I would be trying to find both congressmen and senators who would have a reason to really support this program and push it with their colleagues. So champions on the key committees are really what's necessary going forward. Madam Secretary, it's great to have you as always. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks so much, Francis. Up next, keeping depots on schedule to get the military's planes off the ground. Straight ahead on Government Matters, next steps for getting the Navy's aircraft up to speed. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Much of the progress on maintenance on aircrafts depends on the planning at Air Force and Navy depots. The Government Accountability Office has new recommendations for cutting delays in the Navy depots. Diana Maurer is Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Diana, thanks for coming on the program. You looked, as I mentioned, at Air Force and Navy depots, and you write it pretty explicitly. The Air Force depots completed aircraft maintenance on time or early in five of six years that you examined. Navy depots completed aircraft maintenance late for each of the six years that you examined. What was the disconnect? What was the separation there, Diana? Well, certainly there are a number of factors that, uh, that played into it. I think to kind of baseline this a little bit, the, the kind of maintenance that we're talking about is, is the most extensive and the most complex. So when you're talking about depot maintenance, what you're, what you're really talking about are bringing aircraft in to the depots. In many cases, they're being uh, stripped down to the individual you know, bolts and washers and, and everything else, then reassembled and, and put back out on the flight line. So this takes many years of planning. It requires very careful coordination of ensuring you have spare parts, the right people, the right facilities. So it's, it's a multi-year process. Uh, one of the things, one of the sort of the overarching issue we found was that the, the Air Force frankly did a better job of planning for this than the Navy and certainly had better uh, maintenance outcomes as a result. You find uh, that the Navy has three particular issues uh, that cause these delays. The first one is that the Navy hasn't effectively used historical data. What kind of data do they have access to and how would it make, uh, how would they get better results by using that data in a better way, Diana? Well, sure, well, well the Navy closely tracks how long it takes for them to complete maintenance on, on different aircraft. And one of the things that, that we found was that they weren't taking advantage of that historical data to inform their future planning efforts. So I'll, I'll give you an example of that, Francis. So the, the C-2 is, is a Navy transport plane that carries a material and, and personnel between aircraft carriers and the shore. And during the time that we were looking at, the Navy estimated it was going to take them about nine months to complete depot maintenance on the C-2. But the actual experience over that time period, it was taking anywhere from 15 to 24 months on average to perform depot maintenance. So significantly longer than planned. But the Navy was not updating its planned completion dates based on the historical experience. We think that they have the data. It's an important thing that they can do to, to better uh, set, a, set a mark for future planning, and we think that they should do so. The second item that you write about is that Navy depot planners don't have visibility into aircraft maintenance that's performed outside the depots. Does that mean that uh, aircraft are coming there with maybe some work already begun and the Navy teams don't necessarily know that, or is, is this happening in a different way? So there are, there are different organizations within the Navy that do different levels of maintenance. Um, one way to think about it is there are some organizations that, well, think about your car, right? Sometimes you take your car in, you need to get a tire replaced, change the oil. Sometimes you have to get something individually fixed. And sometimes you take your car in for periodic maintenance. Every 30,000 miles, certain things have to be fixed. The depot sort of falls into that last category. What we found was that the depot maintainers did not have ready access to the information about prior maintenance history of the aircraft and prior experience and how frequently they've been used um, when they were operational. That created surprises for the depot maintainers when they literally opened up the aircraft. In, in many cases, they were finding a number of pretty significant problems that they had not anticipated. 
that meant that maintenance took longer, was more complicated, and it delayed the ability of the, the depot maintainers to get them back to the units. The third item that you write about is that the Navy doesn't have uh, yet formal processes related guidance for communication and coordination between depot stakeholders. What is that lack of communication preventing from happening or causing to happen contributing to these delays? So the planning process is, is very complicated. It involves a number of different organizations throughout the Navy. Um, some of them are sort of headquarter levels. Some of them are, are down at individual depots and includes program offices as, as well as many others. Uh, we found that the Navy does have forums to bring these different stakeholders together, but they're not requiring some of the key stakeholders to attend. Um, and that's, that's a problem. Uh, some of these key planning meetings are not necessarily synced up to resource decision-making processes at the Navy. We thought that was important to sort of bring it bring into sync. Um, the bottom line there is if you're going to be planning out how long it's going to take to fix an aircraft three years in the future, which is what's happening, uh, you need to make sure that all of the key stakeholders are at the table during those initial planning meetings. And you also need to make sure that you have an ongoing feedback mechanism consistently update those plans throughout the throughout the life cycle of the planning process. We have less than a minute left, Diana, um, to the recommendations that you make. Is it, do, does the Air Force do these three things that we just talked about well? Could it be as simple for the Navy as going to the Air Force and saying, show us how you do this so that we can do it the way that you do? I'm sure the Navy would hate to hear me say that, but um, I think there are some things that the Navy, that the Air Force does that can be advantageous for the Navy. In some respect, it's a flip side of the recommendations. The Air Force has a better approach for bringing stakeholders to the table. The Air Force has a better approach to its overall planning process. And the Air Force is, is really more tightly integrated in its approach to planning for and executing depot maintenance. Diana, thanks very much for coming on. As always, it's great to have you back. Great. Thank you very much. Up next, considering the coronavirus in the National Defense Authorization Act. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the virus could change the approach to military authorization. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. The House Armed Services subcommittees have finished markups of their versions of the National Defense Authorization Act. Their bill includes a billion-dollar pandemic response and preparedness fund that's not in the Senate's drafts. Brandon Valeriano is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He's writing about the new NDAA in Defense One with his colleagues Lauren Sander and Eric Gomez. Brandon, thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate your time. You and your colleagues write in this piece that there is a disconcerting disconnect between the Senate's mark and where we are right now with COVID-19. What's your sense of what that disconnect is? Well, I think we're operating on 2019 baselines and we need to think about what has happened in 2020. And there's a lot of adjustments that need to be made and we're spending as if nothing has changed when in fact everything has changed. You write in this piece that the SASC's 20-page report barely mentions the coronavirus. What do you think would have been an appropriate way to address this in the Senate's version? What are you looking for when the House reports out its version of, the, uh, of their NDAA? Well, certainly something needs to be done about readiness. Something needs to be done about preparedness. Something needs to be done about protecting our troops. 
we don't really have a good sense of what needs to be done to prepare to deploy in combat zones. And we're still operational in Afghanistan. And how are we going to control the spread of the virus there where it's taking off? We also need to think about how we're spending holistically. And the big challenge, of course, is we continue to invest in the military, but it's not exactly clear that military threats are our prime threat. We need to worry about global health, we need to worry about climate change, and we need to worry about internal U.S. domestic relations right now. So it's not really clear that we should spend so much externally. You write, uh, the report reflects the pre-pandemic thinking of the 2018 National Defense Strategy, and you cite other documents. Is that the wrong track or is it just an incomplete picture is that which is your sense of where we are right now i think it's the wrong track i think we need to take another look at the national defense strategy uh many administrations can do two or you know sometimes even three during their term and we haven't changed anything in fact the last nds was a bit late and now we're in 2020 and everything has changed and we haven't really uh, woken up to that change um in fact the air force is pushing for a 386 squadron level um, infrastructure. And that represents almost a 25% increase in spending. And when everyone is hurting, people can't pay rent, uh, people are in the streets, we need to rethink our priorities. And you mentioned that at the same time, the Navy is uh, rethinking its force structure at the OSD level instead of the Navy level, given the turn that's happened in the Navy department too. What's the what's the construct look like then in your view of putting together a new national defense strategy in, in the with the possibility that the Trump administration might no longer be in office in January of 2021? Is there time for a new national defense strategy in the context of the NDAA that both of the armed services committees are hashing through right now? Or is just the timing not necessarily maybe going to work? Yeah, I think that's the challenge right now. I don't think the timing is going to work. But the other thing is that if there is a new administration, I know there's a lot of talent ready to go and a lot of people ready to uh, rethink some things. And that's a huge question for us. Uh, we need to rethink the level of spending in the Navy because they have a 355 fleet, but they're not exactly sure what the construction of that fleet is. We don't know what our next generation fighters are going to be. And we're not exactly clear how we're using manpower now in an age of AI and advanced robotics where we don't exactly need manpower. You write in this piece, you and your colleagues, the report does contain some promising uh, provisions to spur innovation and the development of useful new technology. What did you see in the Senate's report of the NDAA that you did like, Brandon? Well, there's a, quite a bit to like, especially things that, uh, you know, I have to be honest, too. I work for the Cyber Solarium Commission. There are a lot of things that we're doing in innovation to streamline. So uh, looking at the AI Commission report, looking at the Cyber Solarium Commission report, looking at how we uh, increase the speed of development, um, that's really the key thing. It's about authorities and purchasing, and uh, there's a lot of technical details to innovation that we forget sometimes. What, has, what is going right in that kind of defense innovation community now? And what is what could maybe use some redirection? There are a lot of pieces. A lot of the branches are trying innovation cells and so on. What do you like that you see out there right now? I like quite a bit that's going on in the Army. The Army Future Command seems to be exemplar for the rest of the DLD in terms of branch uh, service adjustments for innovation. Uh, the Marine Corps' own McWill branch that does futures. They've been very advanced in terms of wargaming for the future. These are the types of initiatives we need. These are the types of things we need to think about. We cannot develop strategy for the future without wargaming and testing these developments. 
The other big thing, though, is we need to settle on a multi-domain battle operation system. And the challenge is, is that three major branches, the Army, uh, the Navy, and the Air Force, are developing their own parallel uh, multi-domain battle system. So we need streamline there. We need control there. We need someone to take a clear hand at the DOD level and prioritize investment. Brandon, um, final thought. You write in this piece, nothing major is being sacrificed to free up resources for other lines of effort. What do you think could go, or how would you recommend that the SASC and the HASC look at what, uh, consider themselves, what should go to free up resources for these other priorities that you and your colleagues suggest? Yeah, there's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of things that people need to do to move forward. We need to make some tough choices. The Army needs to reduce manpower. It needs to rethink the development of a new tank. Uh, the Marine Corps has already uh, kind of stepped back from amphibious operations and uh, tanks. Um, the Air Force needs to make some hard choices about the sixth generation squadron. Um, and the Navy needs to make some hard choices about future ship design and possibly moving towards unmanned or container-based systems that are a lot cheaper. Brandon Valeriano of the Cato Institute, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. In tonight's event spotlight, NATSEC 2020, Coronavirus and Beyond is coming. You'll learn how COVID-19 will affect the business of government in the national security community in the four specialty areas that drive the business of government, personnel, acquisition, financial management, and information technology. You can join the free webinar at fedinsider.com or tune in to WJLA 24-7 News, both happening the week of July 13th from 1 to 2 o'clock in the afternoon, Washington time. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.